Welcome to the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated by Dr. John Owen. We will be continuing to read from page 44 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourselves to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now, to SWRB's reading of the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come unto the Father but by Him. John 14, verse 6. But there is no instance more pregnant unto this purpose than that under our present consideration. Free justification through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ is cried out against as inconsistent with the necessity of personal holiness and obedience. And because the Socinians insist principally on this pretense, it shall be fully and diligently considered apart. And that holiness which, without it, they and others deriving from them do pretend unto, shall be tried by the unerring rule. Wherefore, I desire it may be observed that in pleading for this doctrine, we do it as a principal part of the introduction of grace into our whole relation unto God. Hence, we grant, number one, that it is unsuited, yea, foolish, and, as some speak, childish, unto the principles of unenlightened and unsanctified reason or understandings of men. And this we conceive to be the principal cause of all the oppositions that are made unto it, and all the deprivations of it that the church is pestered withal. Hence are the wits of men so fertile in sophistical cavails against it, so ready to load it with seeming absurdities, and I know not what unsuitableness unto their wondrous rational conceptions. And no objection can be made against it, be it never so trivial, but it is highly applauded by those who look on that introduction of the mystery of grace, which is above their natural conceptions, as unintelligible folly. Number two, that the necessary relation of these things, one unto the other, namely of the justification by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and the necessity of our personal obedience, will not be clearly understood nor duly improved, but by and in the exercise of the wisdom of faith. This we grant also, 
and let who will make what advantage they can of this concession. True faith has that spiritual light in it, or accompanying of it, as that it is able to receive it, and to conduct the soul unto obedience by it. Wherefore, reserving the particular consideration hereof unto its proper place, I say, in general, parentheses number one, that this relation is evident unto the spiritual wisdom whereby we are enabled doctrinally and practically to comprehend the harmony of the mystery of God and the consistency of all the parts of it, one with another. Parenthesis number two, that it is made evident by the scripture wherein both these things, justification through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and the necessity of our personal obedience are plainly asserted and declared. And we defy that rule of the Socinians that seeing these things are inconsistent in their apprehension unto their reason. Therefore, we must say that one of them is not taught in Scripture. For whatever it may appear unto their reason, it does not so to ours. And we have at least as good reason to trust unto our own reason as unto theirs. Yet we absolutely acquiesce in neither, but in the authority of God in the Scripture, rejoicing only in this, that we can set our seal unto His revelations by our own experience. For, parentheses number three, it is fully evident in the gracious conduct which the minds of them that believe are under, even that the Spirit of truth and grace and the inclinations of that new principle of the divine life whereby they are acted. For although from the remainders of sin and darkness that are in them, temptations may arise unto a continuation in sin, because grace has abounded, yet are their minds so formed and framed by the doctrine of this grace, and the grace of this doctrine, that the abounding of grace herein is the principal motive unto their abounding in holiness, as we shall see afterward. And this we aver to be the spring of all those objections which the adversaries of this doctrine do continually endeavor to entangle it with all. As, number one, if the passive righteousness, as it is commonly called, that is, his death and suffering, be imputed unto us, there is no need, nor can it be, that this active righteousness, or the obedience of his life, should be imputed unto us. And so on the contrary, for both together are inconsistent. Number two, that if all sin be pardoned, there is no need of the righteousness. And so on the contrary, if the righteousness of Christ be imputed unto us, there is no room for or need of the pardon of sin. Number three, if we believe the pardon of our sins, then are our sins pardoned before we believe. Or we are bound to believe that which is not so. Number four, if the righteousness of Christ be imputed unto us, then are we esteemed to have done and suffered what, indeed, we never did nor suffered. And it is true that if we are esteemed ourselves to have done it, imputation is overthrown. Number five, if Christ's righteousness be imputed unto us, then are we as righteous as was Christ himself. Number six, if our sins were imputed unto Christ, then was he thought to have sinned, and was a sinner subjectively. 
Number seven, if good works be excluded from any interest in our justification before God, then are they of no use unto our salvation. Number eight, that it is ridiculous to think that where there is no sin, there is not all the righteousness that can be required. Number nine, the righteousness imputed is only a punitive or imaginary righteousness, etc. Now, although all of these and the like objections, however subtly managed, as Socinius boasts, that he had used more than ordinary subtlety in this cause, non-English words, are capable of plain and clear solutions, and we shall avoid the examination of none of them. Yet at present I shall only say that all the shades which they cast on the minds of men do vanish and disappear before the light of express scripture testimonies, and the experience of them that do believe, where there is a due comprehension of the mystery of grace in any tolerable measure. Seventhly, general prejudices against the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Number one, that it is not in terms found in the scripture. Answered. Number two, that nothing is said of it in the writings of the evangelist. Answered. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Nature of Christ's personal ministry. Revelations by the Holy Spirit immediately from Christ. Design of the writings of the evangelists. Number three, differences among Protestants themselves about this doctrine. Answered. Sense of the ancients herein. What is of real difference among Protestants considered? Seventhly, there are some common prejudices that are usually pleaded against the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, which, because they will not orderly fall under a particular consideration in our progress, may be briefly examined in these general previous considerations. Number one, it is usually urged against it that this imputation of the righteousness of Christ is nowhere mentioned expressly in the scripture. This is the first objection of Bellarmine against it. Non-English words. An objection, doubtless, unreasonably and immodestly urged by men of this persuasion. For not only do they make profession of their whole faith or their belief of all things in matters of religion, in terms and expression nowhere is used in the scripture, but believe many things also, as they say, with faith divine, not at all revealed or contained in the scripture, but drained by them out of the traditions of the church. I do not, therefore, understand how such persons can modestly manage this as an objection against any doctrine, that the terms wherein some do express it are not retos, found in the scripture just in that order of one word after another as by them they are used for this rule may be much enlarged and yet be kept straight enough to exclude the principal concerns of their church out of the confines of Christianity nor can I apprehend much more equity in others who reflect with severity on this expression of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ as unscriptural as if those who make use thereof were criminal in no small degree, when themselves, immediately in the declaration of their own judgment, make use of such terms, distinctions, and expressions as are so far from being in the scripture, as it is at odds, they had 
never been in the world had they escaped Aristotle's mint or that of the schools deriving from him. And thus, although a sufficient answer has frequently enough, if any can be so, been returned unto this objection by Bellarmine, yet has one of late amongst ourselves made the translation of it into English to be the substance of the first chapter of a book about justification. Though he needed not to have given such an early intimation unto whom he is beholding for the greatest part of his ensuing discourse, unless it be what is taken up in despiteful revilings of other men. For take from him what is not his own, on the one hand, and impertinent cavils at the words and expressions of other men, with forged imputations on some of them, on the other, and his whole book will disappear. But yet, although he affirms that none of the Protestant writers who speak of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ unto us, which were all of them, without exception until of late, have precisely kept to the form of wholesome words, but have rather swerved and varied from the language of Scripture. Yet he will excuse them from open error if they intend no more thereby, but that we are made partakers of the benefits of the righteousness of Christ. But if they intend that the righteousness of Christ itself imputed unto us, that is, so as to be our righteousness before God, whereon we are pardoned and accepted with Him, or do receive the forgiveness of sins, and a right to the heavenly inheritance, then they are guilty of that error which makes us to be esteemed to do ourselves what Christ did, and so on the other side, Christ to have done what we do and did, chapters 2 and 3. But these things are not so. For if we are esteemed to have done anything in our own persons, it cannot be imputed unto us as done for us by another, as it will appear when we shall treat of these things afterwards. But the great and holy persons intended are as little concerned in the accusation or apologies of some writers as those writers seem to be acquainted with that learning, wisdom, and judgment wherein they did excel, and the characters whereof are so eminently conspicuous in all their writings. But the judgment of most Protestants is not only candidly expressed, but approved of also by Bellarmine himself in another place, non-English words. Quote, It were not absurd if anyone should say that the righteousness and merits of Christ are imputed unto us when they are given and applied unto us as if we ourselves had satisfied God. End quote. And this he confirms with that saying of Bernard, non-English words. And those who will acknowledge no more in this matter, but only a participation, qua vis modo, one way or other, of the benefits of the obedience and righteousness of Christ, wherein we have the concurrence of the Socinians also, might do well, as I suppose, plainly to deny all imputation of his righteousness unto us in any sense, as they do, seeing the benefits of his righteousness cannot be said to be imputed unto us what way soever we are made partakers of them. For to say that the righteousness of Christ is imputed unto us with respect unto the benefits of it, when neither the righteousness itself is imputed unto us, nor can the benefits of it be imputed unto us, as we shall see afterward, 
does minister great occasion of much needless variance and contests. Neither do I know any reason why men should seek countenance unto this doctrine under such an expression as themselves reflect upon as unscriptural if they be contented that their minds and sense should be clearly understood and apprehended for truth needs no subterfuge. The Socinians do now principally make use of this objection for finding the whole church of God in the use of sundry expressions in the declaration of the most important truths of the gospel that are not literally contained in the scripture, they hoped for an advantage from thence in their opposition unto the things themselves. Such are the terms of the Trinity, the Incarnation, Satisfaction, and Merit of Christ, as this also of the imputation of His righteousness. How little they have prevailed in the other instances has been sufficiently manifested by them with whom they have to do. But as unto that part of this objection, which concerns the imputation of the righteousness of Christ unto believers, those by whom it is asserted, do say, parentheses number one, that it is the thing alone intended which they plead for, if that be not contained in the scripture, if it be not plainly taught and confirmed therein, they will speedily relinquish it. But... If they can prove that the doctrine which they intend in this expression, and which is thereby plainly declared unto the understandings of men, is a divine truth sufficiently witnessed unto in the scripture, then is this expression of it reductively scriptural, and the truth itself so expressed a divine verity. To deny this is to take away all use of the interpretation of the scripture and to overthrow the ministry of the church. This, therefore, is to be alone inquired into. Parentheses number two. They say, the same thing is taught and expressed in the scripture in phrases equivalent. For it affirms that, quote, by the obedience of one, end quote, that is Christ, Quote, many are made righteous, end quote, Romans 5.19, that we are made righteous by the imputation of the righteousness unto us. Quote, blessed is the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, end quote, chapter 4, verse 6. And if we are made righteous by the imputation of righteousness unto us, that obedience or righteousness whereby we are made righteous is imputed unto us. And they will be content with this expression of this doctrine, that the obedience of Christ, whereby we are made righteous, is the righteousness which God imputes unto us. Wherefore, this objection is of no force to disadvantage the truth pleaded for. Number two. So Simeus objects, in particular, against this doctrine of justification by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and of his satisfaction that there is nothing said of it in the evangelists, nor in the report of the sermons of Christ unto the people, nor yet in those of his private discourses with his disciples. And he urges it vehemently and at large against the whole of the expiation of sin by his death. Non-English words. And as it is easy, non-English words, this notion of his is not only made use of and pressed at large by one among ourselves, but improved also by a dangerous comparison between the writings of the evangelists 
and the other writings of the New Testament. For to enforce this argument that the histories of the gospel, wherein the sermons of Christ are recorded, do make no mention of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and in his judgment they do not, nor of his satisfaction or merit or expiation of sin or of the redemption by his death, as they do not in the judgment of Socinius. It is added by him that for his part he is apt to admire our Savior's sermons, who was the author of our religion before the writings of the apostles, though inspired men, whereunto many dangerous insinuations and reflections on the writings of St. Paul, contrary to the faith and sense of the church in all ages, are subjoined. See pages 240 and 241. But this boldness is not only unwarrantable, but to be abhorred. What place of scripture, what ecclesiastical tradition, what single precedent of any one sober Christian writer, what theological reason will countenance a man in making the comparison mentioned and so determining thereon? Such juvenile boldness such want of a due apprehension and understanding of the nature of divine inspiration with the order and design of the writings of the New Testament, which are the springs of this precipitate censure, ought to be reflected on. At present, to remove this pretense out of our way, it may be observed, parentheses number one, that what the Lord Christ taught his disciples in his personal ministry on the earth was suited unto that economy of the church which was antecedent unto his death and resurrection. Nothing did he withhold from them that was needful to their faith, obedience, and consolation in that state. Many things he instructed them in, out of the scripture. Many new revelations he made unto them, and many times did he occasionally instruct and rectify their judgment. Howbeit, he made no clear, distinct revelation of those sacred mysteries unto them which are peculiar unto the faith of the New Testament, nor were to be distinctly apprehended before his death and resurrection. Parentheses number two. What the Lord Christ revealed afterward by his Spirit unto the apostles was no less immediately from himself than was the truth which he spoke unto them with his own mouth in the days of his flesh. An apprehension unto the contrary is destructive of Christian religion. The epistles of the apostles are no less Christ's sermons than that which he delivered on the mount. Wherefore, parentheses number three, neither in the things themselves, nor in the way of the delivery or revelation, is there any advantage of the one sort of writings above the other. The things written in the epistles proceed from the same wisdom, the same grace, the same love with the things which he spoke with his own mouth in the days of his flesh and are of the same divine veracity, authority, and efficacy. The revelation which he made by his Spirit is no less divine and immediate from himself than what he spoke unto his disciples on the earth. To distinguish between these on any of these accounts is intolerable folly. Parentheses number four. The writings of the evangelist do not contain the whole of all the instructions which the Lord Christ gave unto his disciples personally on the earth. For he was seen of them after his resurrection 
40 days and spoke with them of the, quote, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And yet nothing hereof is recorded in their writings, but only some few occasional speeches. Nor had he given before unto them a clear and distinct understanding of those things which were delivered concerning his death and resurrection in the Old Testament, as is plainly declared. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. For it was not necessary for them in that state wherein they were. Wherefore, parenthesis number five, as to the extent of divine revelations objectively, those which he granted by his Spirit unto his apostles after his ascension were beyond those which he personally taught them, so far as they are recorded in the writings of the evangelist. For he told them plainly, not long before his death, that he had many things to say unto them which, quote, they could not bear, end quote, John Chapter 16, verse 12. And for the knowledge of those things, he refers them to the coming of the Spirit, to make revelation of them from himself. In the next words, quote, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. End quote. Verses 13 and 14. And on this account, he had told them before that it was expedient for them that he should go away, that the Holy Spirit might come unto them, whom he would send from the Father. Verse 7. Hereunto he referred the full and clear manifestation of the mysteries of the gospel. So false, as well as dangerous and scandalous, are those insinuations of Socinius and his followers. Parenthesis number six. The writings of the evangelists are full unto their proper end and purpose. These were to record the genealogy, conception, birth, acts, miracles, and teachings of our Savior, so far as to invent him to be the true, only promised Messiah. So he testifies who wrote the last of them. Quote, Many other signs truly did Jesus, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. End quote. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Unto this end, everything is recorded by them that is needful unto the engenerating and establishing of faith. Upon this confirmation, all things declared in the Old Testament concerning him, all that was taught in the types and sacrifices, became the object of faith. In that sense, wherein they were interpreted in the accomplishment, and that in them this doctrine was before revealed, shall be proved afterward. It is, therefore, no wonder if some things, and those of the highest importance, should be declared more fully in other writings of the New Testament than they are in those of the evangelists. Parenthesis number seven. The pretense itself is wholly false. For there are as many pregnant testimonies given unto this truth in one alone of the evangelists as in any other book in the New Testament, namely in the book of John. I shall refer to some of them which will be pleaded in their proper place. Chapter 1, verse 12, verse 17.
chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, and verse 36, chapter 5, verse 24. But we may pass by this as one of those inventions concerning which Socinius boasts in his epistle to Michael Vajoditus, that his writings were esteemed by many for the singularity of things asserted in them. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, A.B., Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc., that SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends. But we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you.